Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7? For the last couple of weeks in our study in the Gospel of Matthew, we've been in chapter 7, uh, looking at a command that Jesus gave to his disciples to not go around with a judgmental attitude like the scribes and Pharisees, you know, where you're just criticizing everybody for everything. And, that, and then we've been looking at that. In fact, in verses 1 and 2, uh, Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And we said last week that, you know, I believe what Jesus is saying is this. He's saying, look, don't go around constantly, you know, critical-hearted, looking down on everyone who doesn't look like you, dress like you, talk like you, and, and even think like you. Jesus is saying, look, don't sit in the place of God and condemn uh, others because they don't measure up to your standards. If you're hard on others, God will judge your life, your faults and flaws, harshly too. And I'm not saying judge you in the sense that as a Christian you're not throwing to hell. It just means that, you know, when it comes to the chastening of God, you know, if we're real hard on others for their faults and failings and flaws, you know, maybe God's going to be a little tough on us when it comes to practical matters, you know. Maybe discipline us a little more harshly to soften us up a little bit and to cause us to realize, you know, we're all sinners saved by grace. We're all in this process together of sanctification. And you know what? None of us are perfect this side of glory. So let's stop pointing a condemning finger at each other. Let's come alongside each other and let's pray for one another and encourage each other to walk with God. The Lord went on to say in verses 3 to 5, he said, And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye? But do not consider the plank in your own eye. Now, a speck in the Greek is a word that means just a very small sliver of wood. A plank would be a log, you know, like we said, like last week, like a telephone pole, right? He said, or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a telephone pole is hanging out of your own eye. Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, as we pointed out last week, and we're getting a running start at our message this morning, but the speck in somebody else's eye, I think, represents... You know, an area of disobedience, a fault, a flaw, bad habit, maybe that they're not dealing with, all right? Things that the scribes and Pharisees were very critical of. I mean, they were always nitpicking other people's lives, you know, because they didn't look like us and dress like us and, and have the same diet we, we observe and so on. Like, Pharisees and scribes were very critical of others' shortcomings, and yet they themselves had this log hanging out of their own eye, Jesus said. And the log represents, I believe, self-righteous pride, which the Pharisees had a lot of. And pride is the greatest or the biggest sin of all. Jesus spoke of it being in the eye because it's with our eyes that we see ourselves and others. And the greater the pride and self-righteousness, the greater the log or the size of the log in your spiritual eyes. And the larger the log in our spiritual eyes, well, it's going to keep us from seeing ourselves honestly, which means we're not going to be able to really help anybody else with the speck in their eye. Even though Jesus said, look, remove the log, then you'll see clearly to help your brother with the speck in their eye. You know, it's still a foreign object, whether it's a speck or a log, neither one belong in the other's eye, right? So we are to help each other to walk with God and be all we can be. But it's just important that we understand that, you know, I'm to focus on myself first. Make sure that my life is right with God before I try to help anybody else live for him. And if I've got a log of pride and self-righteousness hanging out of my eye, 
guess what? I can't even see myself honestly. Uh, but as we said last week, it will blind me to my true self, but make me ultra-perceptive to your sins and faults. That's how pride and self-righteousness works. It blinds us to our faults, but it really emphasizes the faults of others. And that's we become Pharisees then. And then Jesus brings to a close uh, this section. And verse 6 does belong to verses 1 through 5. It's the uh, exclamation point, okay? The end, the closing comment by Jesus on the subject of judging. He said, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. Now, some people have a real problem with this statement by Jesus. You say, well, why? Well, they say right after he, the Lord commanded us, forbid us from judging others, he then adds verse 6, which seems to contradict everything, everything he's just gotten done saying. And because of it, some have tried to isolate verse 6 from verses 1 through 5, making it a, an entirely separate thought. But it isn't, all right? If you look carefully at what, you, what Jesus has just finished saying, we see that verse 6 fits the context perfectly. Because Jesus adds this statement, listen, to balance everything he's just gotten done teaching in verses 1 to 5. What do I mean? Well, after we've taken the log out of our own eyes, making sure that we're not hypercritical Pharisees, just going around, you know, condemning everyone out of self-righteous pride. I mean, after we've dealt with our own hearts, to make sure that what's motivating us to want to help somebody remove whatever speck they have in their eye, which means whatever area of disobedience or flaw that they're still not dealing with uh, that is hindering their walk with God, it's okay to go to them and help them to remove the speck from their eye because we all want each other to be all we can be for the Lord. We have to make sure that our hearts are not being motivated by this self-righteous pride that characterized the scribes and Pharisees. Because when they pointed out the faults of others, they did with a critical heart. It made them feel superior to nitpick other people's lives and find all the little areas that they didn't think they were measuring up so that they could, you know, and they may have tried to help people uh, get rid of those things in their lives that weren't right. But it was always out of a sense of pride. Oh, here, let me help you, you poor, weak thing. You know, don't, look at my life. How together it is, right? And just that, that nauseating, you know, pride and all. We got to make sure our hearts are right. That we're, you know, what's motivating us is a sincere love for others and a humility that says, look, I'm a sinner too. I mean, look, I wrestle with the same thing you're wrestling with. God gave me grace. He's delivered me. I want to come alongside you and pray for you and, and, and help you because he's going to do the same for you. So that's important that we do that, right? To help a brother or sister uh, remove the speck from their eye, any area of disobedience. But after all of that, after we make sure we do all this self-examination, make sure our heart is right and we don't have any logs hanging out of our own eye, listen, we still need to be discerning and discriminating with God's holy truth. And that's the point Jesus is making. That's the balance verse that balances out verses 1 through 5. Let me read verse 6 again. Let's look at what Jesus was really saying here. He said, do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. Now, the dogs that Jesus had in mind here were not domestic house pets. The Greek word is a word that was used of the filthy mongrels that roamed the streets of the ancient world in packs, scavenging in the city garbage dumps. They were dangerous, they were dirty, and they were hated. 
Pigs, well, that speaks for itself. Right? Pigs are filthy animals who love to lie in the mud also and, and to feed on garbage. In the law of Moses, God pronounced both dogs and pigs unclean and therefore unholy animals. And as such, God forbid his people in the Old Testament from using either as food or as sacrifices to bring to offer to him. God said, I don't want the dogs or the swine. They're unclean. You bring me what is holy. So those animals were excluded from uh, being offerings given to God. When Jesus said, we are not to give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast our pearls before swine. The pearls and that which is holy refers to God's truth as it relates to God's kingdom. God's truth as it relates to God's kingdom. The dogs and pigs therefore represent unholy people, or in other words, unbelievers. But, this is important, not just any unbelievers, but those in particular who are openly and even aggressively antagonistic towards the truth of God in general and the gospel of Christ in particular. We know that because Jesus said these particular unbelievers, when confronted with the truth of God, trample those truths under their feet and turn on you to attack. They're aggressive. You see the idea? They're aggressive in their hatred of God's truth. Now, is Jesus saying we shouldn't give the gospel to any unbeliever? We know that's not true, of course. The Lord isn't forbidding us from sharing God's truth with all unbelievers because then nobody could be saved. The Lord Jesus himself went out preaching the good news of the kingdom to unbelievers and commissioned us as his people in Mark 16, verse 15, to do the same. To go into all the world, he said, and preach the good news to everyone. The dogs and swine, which Jesus forbids us from sharing God's truth with, are not just any unbelievers, but are those unbelievers who have heard the gospel but have decisively and even defiantly rejected it. You know, John Calvin put his finger on this when he said, and I quote, It ought to be understood that dogs and swine are names given not to every kind of debauched men or to those who are destitute of the fear of God and of true godliness, but to those who by clear evidences have manifested a hardened contempt for God so that their disease appears to be incurable, end quote. You see, when you try to help others come to Jesus, and this gets real practical, okay? When you try to help others come to, to Jesus, you have to know what to say, when to say it, and when to just keep your mouth shut. Jesus is teaching us here to be discriminating with God's holy truth. That's the bottom line. And not to give it to the unholy, hard-hearted antagonist who will take it, mock it, throw it on the ground, and grind it into the dirt. That's the idea. And even though verse 6 deals primarily with unbelievers, it could apply to Christians as well, listen, who also refuse to have the speck removed from their eye. There's a lot of Christians who are not living the way they should be living for the Lord. Now, none of us are perfect, obviously. But I'm talking about those blatant sins that, you know, Christians, we ought to stay away from. Living with each other out of wedlock, uh, doing other things that we shouldn't be doing. Clear things that God has said, look, uh, these are not, these are the works of the sons of darkness. We are children of light shouldn't be involved in those things. And so as Christians, we want to see each other walk with God. We want to be accountable to each other. And so sometimes we see a brother or sister who is living in some area of sin. We pray about it. And if we feel the Holy Spirit is telling us to go to them, and we do, we open the word and show them, look, you know as a Christian you shouldn't be doing this. You know what God's word says. Now the correct response on their part would be, I know I'm really struggling with this. I've been praying about it. Would you pray with me? Could you, 
Yeah, great. The wrong response, is, which is more than not the common one today, is they get very upset. Who are you to judge me? They throw verse 1 back in your face. Judge not that you be not judged, as if we're not supposed to confront each other when we're living in sin, right? We're, we're not to be accountable to each other, which is not true. We are. But they will, you know, turn on you and attack you. All of a sudden, now you're the guilty party. Now, when that happens, Jesus is saying here, look, you've said enough, you've done enough, now just be silent. In fact, he told his own disciples concerning the Pharisees, Matthew 15, verse 14, he said, look, let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a ditch. And I think sometimes people are so hard-hearted, they don't want to hear what God has to say, they don't want to get their lives right with the Lord, say, you know what, let them go, because sometimes a person has to drive their life into the ditch. Because they're so hard-hearted, they have to drive it off the road into the ditch, where, you know, in that place, whatever that means in their life, whether their life comes crashing down in some area, God has ways of getting our attention. So sometimes, after you've said all you can say, just say, Lord, I commit them to you. And you have to work to soften their hearts. Proverbs 23, verse 9 says, Don't waste your breath on fools, for they will despise the wisest advice. You know, I think one of the greatest lessons, and I think Jesus is teaching it right here, one of the greatest lessons for us as Christians to learn is how to be discerning with our presentation of the Word of God with different types of people. Now look, as we go out into the world, we witness the people about the Lord. And you, you all know this. I mean, we, we run into all kinds of different people, don't we? I mean, in our society, we have, different, we have many different cultures represented. And there's a cultural mindset that they bring to the table. People are at different ages. The young uh, have a different way of looking at things than older folks do. Uh, people are at different places at any given point in their life. And that impacts the way they see things and process things and so on. And I'll tell you what, and this is something the Holy Spirit has to do for us. But you will if you're open. We need to be mature enough and spiritually discerning enough to know what to say to any given person and what not to say. And sometimes that what not to say is a tough one. What to say and what not to say depending on the individual. And all you have to do is look at Jesus to learn this principle. That's all you have to do. I mean, Jesus dealt with people in a variety of ways. He did not use canned, memorized gospel presentations in his ministry, did he? He dealt with people individually, depending on the sincerity of their heart and according to their grasp of spiritual things. Let me give you a few examples. We could look at many. Remember how when Jesus talked to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Nicodemus was a Pharisee, so he was a well-educated man, and he was a leader in Israel because the Pharisees were looked on as leaders. And the Pharisees, of course, were those men who believed that because they kept the law meticulously and did all kinds of good works, that that earned them a place in heaven. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus one night, Nick at night, right? He comes to Jesus one night and he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a, a man sent from God because nobody can do the things that you do unless God is with him. And so Nicodemus was, I think, trying to be polite and respectful, but I sent a little tone of kind of buttering the Lord up, right? And you know what? Jesus will not be buttered up. I mean, right. we might try to do that, and I think we do it in our prayers, you know, and we try to, you know, Lord, you're so great, you're such a wonderful God, you know, like our kids did to us, you know, and when they wanted something, you know. And so Nicodemus, I think, you know, 
out of sense of respect, but a little self-serving was buttering the Lord up. And Jesus cut right to the chase and said to him, Nicodemus, your good works as a Pharisee will never earn you heaven. Nobody ever ascended to heaven by their good deeds. But the Son of Man has come down from heaven to meet us, I'm paraphrasing now, to meet us where we were. Man had fallen and he couldn't get up, so the Lord had to come down to rescue us. And he came down and he said, Nicodemus, what you need is a second birth. You've been born once physically of water. Now you need to be born again of the Spirit because it takes two births to get into heaven. One physical, one spiritual. Your good works will never get you there. So he tailored his gospel presentation exactly where Nicodemus was living. Then we move to John chapter 4. Jesus sits down by a well near a town named Sychar in Samaria, which was to the north of Jerusalem. And there he waited for a woman. The father told him would be coming to gather water at around noon. And she was a Samaritan. She was gathering water at the hottest part of the day because she was an outcast. I mean, she was ostracized by the other women uh, in her village because they would all go get water early in the morning and late, late at night when the sun was, when it was coolest out. You had to, it's a lot of work to drop that bucket into that well and pull up this water several times to fill all your, uh, your pitchers and so on for the day. And so her, the other women of the village had ostracized her. We find out why as Jesus sits down and she comes and he confronts her. And he basically says to her, you know, if you drink the water that I give, you'll never thirst again. I know, you, I know why you're here. You're getting water because you're thirsty and water for your family and so on. But he said, look, if you drink from the water that I give, you'll never thirst again. Now, he has moved from the physical to the spiritual. He is putting his finger on where she's living. And we come to find out that she had been married and divorced five times and was now living with a man. And the idea was that this woman was empty in her soul. But she was looking to fill that emptiness spiritually with something physical. In her case, human relationships, which couldn't do it, never has done it. And so Jesus says, what you really need, what the thirst you're feeling is not, the emptiness is not going to be satisfied with human relationships. Men aren't going to do it. What you need is the water that I can give, and only I can give. You need living water, which was his way of saying, you need a relationship with me. And she winds up getting saved and becomes an evangelist to her village. But he tailored his presentation to right where she was at. And finally, I think of the rich young ruler. There's other examples we can give, but uh, here was a man who was rich, he was young, he was a ruler of a synagogue, so he was a spiritual man himself. And he came to Jesus one day and said, Good Master, what must I do to have eternal life? Now, Jesus knew that his money was on the throne of his heart. And unless Jesus Christ is given the right to sit down on the throne of our hearts, to govern over our lives, to be our king, we can't be saved. We can't have eternal life. This guy wanted to add Jesus to his life like so many do today. He wanted to hold on to his money, his prestige, his community influence because he was a wealthy man and influential. And he wanted to hold on to all of that, but he wanted Jesus too. And Jesus basically said, you know what? You can't add me to your life. Eternal life only comes when you abandon what you're worshiping. Whatever governs your life right now and let me sit down on the throne of your heart. So in his case, his money was his real God. He said, give it away to the poor, come follow me. But he went away sorrowful. Look, 
Just because you give the right presentation to a person doesn't mean they're going to get saved. This guy heard the right presentation from the Lord Jesus himself. But he went away sorrowful because he had great riches and he was not willing to part with them. But in all of these examples and throughout the Lord's public ministry, he was always willing to share the gospel with sincere seekers. Always. Yet always in a very personalized and discerning way. However, those who were hard-hearted, whether they were non-religious antagonists or ultra-religious hypocrites like the Pharisees, he commanded his disciples, and I'm quoting the Lord now, he said, leave them alone because they are blind leaders of the blind. I think of Pilate. The morning that Jesus Christ was brought to Pilate, the morning of his crucifixion, he was brought to Pilate, right? And Pilate asked him, are you a king? Because that was the charge. This man claims to be a king, the Jews said. He is, uh, he is an insurrectionist, trying to lead people away from Caesar, our true king. Even though the Jews hated Caesar. But it was politically expedient to uh, bring those charges against the Lord Jesus so that Pilate would pass a guilty sentence and have him crucified. So Pilate interrogates him privately in his praetorium. He says, is it true what I hear? Are you a king? And Jesus responded to Pilate and said, For this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. To which Pilate responded sarcastically, What is truth? And he walked away, right? Now, what did the Lord Jesus do? Did he yell, Wait, wait! I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Honest! Come back! No, he let him walk away. Because he knew Pilate was not interested in hearing the truth of God. And so Jesus didn't waste his time sharing the truth of God with him. He just let him walk away. Sometimes we have to let people walk away. Because we've said all we can say to them. Running after them, begging them to accept Christ. That's not what we're commanded to do. Eventually, Pilate sent Jesus to Herod. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was initially thrilled because he was hoping that Jesus would work a miracle for him to amuse him. But when Herod tried to question the Lord, Jesus didn't say a word to Herod. Why? Herod had already heard the gospel and rejected it. Jesus refused to take what was holy and give it to the dogs and swine. This was a principle that Jesus gave to his disciples when he sent them out two by two on their first missionary endeavor. He told them, as recorded in Matthew 10, And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Notice he didn't say to them, if they don't want to hear the gospel, you stay there and keep beating them over the head with the truth until they're converted. He said, look, give them the gospel. If they're open, answer questions. Do whatever you have to do to, to, to make it clear to them what you're teaching. If they're hard-hearted, they won't hear it, they mock. He said, shake the dust off and move on. This was a principle that Paul followed in Acts chapter 13 when he was witnessing him and Barnabas to some Jews in the area of modern-day Turkey. We read in Acts 13, verse 46, after they had rejected what Paul and Barnabas said and uh, rejected it soundly. I mean, they were uh, really putting them down. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, your Jews. Salvation is of the Jews. Jesus told his apostles, to first go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Paul said it was necessary. The word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it, 
and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles now. In verse 51 it says, But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. So Paul didn't stay in an area where people were not open to hearing the gospel. He presented the gospel if they refused to receive it and they gave him a hard time, he moved on. During Paul's second missionary journey, while in Corinth, he went into the synagogue there, and there he preached that Jesus was, in fact, the Christ. In Acts 18, verse 6, we read, but when they opposed him and blasphemed. See, this is what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 7, verse 6. This kind of blatant disregard, mocking, defiant rejection. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. For now on, from now on I will go to the Gentiles. Look, there's another application that we can glean from Matthew 7, verse 6. When it comes to unbelievers, any unbelievers, listen. The only doctrine we should be talking about with an unbeliever is the doctrine of salvation. Now, that doesn't mean you can't get into a topic like prophecy. Because a lot of unbelievers today are very interested in what the Bible has to say prophetically. And that can be a great opening to presenting the gospel. As you share a few of the end time prophecies. And how that God says these things were going to happen before Jesus returned. And you know what? We're seeing them every day in the newspaper. You better get your life right. He's coming soon. That's a great open door, right? Nothing wrong with that. But to talk to an unbeliever about doctrines like election predestination, or the gifts of the Holy Spirit, that's wrong. These things, as Paul said in um, 1 Corinthians 2.14, he said, the natural man, unbelievers, they don't receive the things of the Spirit of God. Neither can they know them because they're foolishness to them. Why? Because they, the truths of God are spiritually discerned, and those folks don't have the discerning equipment to understand the deeper things of God. So you keep it simple. You focus on the gospel. And, and, and while we're talking about this, I know it's not directly on the point, all right? It's in the neighborhood. So let's just stop at a neighbor's house for a second. Because I got to just, while we're here, I got I to gotta say this, all right? I also have a major problem with Christians who talk to their unsaved friends, trying to help them now, but who talk to their unsaved friends like they were saved. And if their unsaved friend is going through a difficult time financially, we'll say, they will quote what God has said in his, his word. They'll say, you know, God has promised us that he will provide all of our needs according to his riches and glory. He promised us that. Or, if they're going through a rough time emotionally, I've heard them quote passages like Philippians 6, or uh, 4, I should say, 6 to 7, where Paul says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all that he has done. Then you will experience God's peace. See, going through emotional time, rough time. Then you'll experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. This is what they tell their unsafe friends, trying to help them. You know, we go through a rough time emotionally, you know, got all that anxiety. God says, you just cast it on me. Just pray and God's peace will then just fill your heart. Well, there's a little problem with that. Who was God talking to in these verses, right? My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus or in Christ Jesus. When Paul said, look, 
uh, after you pray to God and thank him for his answers and so on, you're going to experience the peace of God, which passes human understanding and will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. These were not promises given to unbelievers. And again, we have to be discerning enough as believers not to take what God has promised to his children and say, well, it applies to anybody. As if unbelievers can call on, uh, could call on God through prayer, casting their cares on him, and he's promised to provide their needs and so on. Or if they're going through a rough time emotionally, they can, you know, pray and tell it to God, and he's going to just give them a peace that passes human understanding. Look, it doesn't work that way. God has only given these promises to his children, those people that have surrendered control of their lives to Jesus Christ. To unbelievers, he has given some promises. I find a couple in John chapter 3, verses 16 and then 36. We all know verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? That whoever believes on him should not perish in hell, but have everlasting life. That's a promise that God has given to unbelievers. That look, God loves you. And he wants to save you from hell. He did that by sending his son. Whoever believes will be spared the judgment of God. So receive Christ. That's a promise. We know from other places, Jesus said, if you come to me looking for salvation, I will never turn you away. That's a promise to unbelievers, right? And then in verse 36, it goes on to say, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Look, the only prayers that God has promised to answer unbelievers is, Lord, I receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Jesus, come into my heart, take control, and give me eternal life. Those are promises God has given to unbelievers. If they will receive Christ, they can be assured that they will be saved, become children of God. Once you're a child of God, all the promises in the New Testament then apply to you. You can claim them all day long, but not until you get saved. That's why for us who are believers trying to help people, you don't help unbelievers by giving them promises that God has only given to his, his kids. You give them the gospel, right? You give them the gospel. Now, what if after we share the gospel with these unbelievers, what if after we share it, they reject it? What then? Because some people say, well, we give up on them. Because Jesus said that right here in Matthew 7, verse 6. Just give, give up on them. Well, no, I don't believe that's what Jesus said. He just simply said, stop preaching to them. Stop giving them the truth of God. He didn't say give up on them, right? In fact, one author put it this way. He said, and I quote, To be effective in ministry, we must make judgments, not for condemnation, but for identification. Is this person open to the truth? Is he sensitive? Is he hungering? Or does he just want to argue and discuss endlessly? The Lord loves to see us effective, and Satan would love to see us sidetracked. How do we know what is wise in these matters? How can we know what we should do and where we should invest our time? How does this work out practically? Jesus gives the answer in the next verse. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find Knock, and it will be open to you. Folks, in other words, we don't give up on them. We pray for them. We pray for them. Prayer is very important and powerful, by the way. But let me ask you this. As powerful and important as prayer is, and we should definitely do it, is that all we do towards those who have hardened their hearts towards the gospel? Is there anything else we do? Yeah, I think there is. In fact, William Barclay, the great 
British devotional commentator, in his commentary on Matthew, said this, and I quote, he said, it is often impossible to talk to some people about Jesus Christ. Their insensitiveness, their moral blindness, their intellectual pride and cynical mockery may make them impervious to words about Christ. Listen, but it is always possible to show men Christ. And the weakness of the church lies not in lack of Christian arguments, but in lack of Christian lives. Or in other words, Christian living. You know, Paul called the Corinthians his living epistles, known and read by all men. When someone says to you, look, I don't want to hear another word about Jesus. That's fine. Close your mouth, but let your light shine. Let your light shine. Because you're still preaching, okay? You're still preaching. Maybe not verbally. You're preaching non-verbally through the way you live. Paul said, you guys are my living. We don't need letters of recommendation. Back in Paul's day, it was very important for a teacher or a preacher or a uh, philosopher to have letters of recommendation from men. Oh, this guy was wonderful. Oh, boy, he blessed us and this and that. Paul says, I don't need letters of recommendation from you guys as to the validity of my ministry. You're my letters of recommendation. Your lives are living epistles. The way God has changed you guys is a testimony to the entire region that what I'm preaching is true. So you know what, guys? People can argue with your doctrine. They can't argue with your lives. I think a nonverbal witness, in many respects, is more powerful and life-changing than a verbal witness. But Paul called them and us living epistles, known and read by all men. Let me close with this. I don't know if you know this, but last Thursday, December 15th, Christopher Hitchens, the avowed atheist and premier antagonist of the Christian faith, died of complications from esophageal cancer. Hitchens traveled the world debating Christians as to the existence of God and the dangers of religion. He was a leading figure in the New Atheist Movement and the author of the book, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. Hitchens said concerning the death of Moral Majority founder Jerry Falwell back in 2007, he said, and I quote, The discovery of the carcass of Jerry Falwell on the floor of an obscure office in Virginia has almost zero significance, except perhaps for two categories of the species labeled credulous idiot. He went on to say, It is a shame there is no hell for Falwell to go to, end quote. So he's a delightful man. Christopher Hitchens heard the gospel literally thousands of times during the course of his life. And each time, he rejected it with sarcasm and ridicule. It would have been justified for Christians to hate this man. It would have been justified for Christian websites to explode with hatred and animosity for this man. And yet when Hitchens was diagnosed with cancer in June of 2010... Christians from America and all over the world immediately bombarded him with good wishes and prayers. In fact, in September of 2010, they even organized what they called an Everybody Pray for Hitchens Day. I remember that. I even prayed for the man on that day. And Everybody Pray for Hitchens Day, organized in September of 2010. Hitchens did show his appreciation, though he was convinced that it would do him no good. He was right. He chose not to let it. His heart had become too hardened. 
and he died last Thursday. But folks, this is still how we deal with people who are hard-hearted and antagonistic towards the gospel. We love them, and we no longer preach to them, but we sure pray for them. And listen, when those whose hearts were once hardened by what Paul calls the deceitfulness of sin, and many people today, their hearts are so hardened because of the deceitfulness of sin, they just think that we Christians are a bunch of, you know, uh, uptight um, killjoys that want to keep people from having fun. And so they react against that. No one's going to tell me how to live my life. If I want to do this and that, and I want to sleep around, and I want to drink myself to death, and by the way, Hitchens was a heavy drinker and smoker, I'm going to do it. So you share the gospel with them, they shut you down, they ridicule you, they mock you, and you know what? You go silent. But you pray. And you let your light shine. Which means you continue to live for the Lord. Because I'll tell you what, again, people will may argue with your doctrine, but they can't argue with your life. If you're really living what you claim to believe, you know, they may not agree with you, but they can't call you a hypocrite. And so if you let your light shine, continue to love them, what does that mean? By just whatever little kindnesses you can do for them. It gives the Holy Spirit now the opportunity to begin to work in their hearts, softening their hearts, breaking down the walls of resistance. It doesn't work with everybody, but this is sure the way to do it with most people. And as the Holy Spirit begins to soften their hearts, at one point, and maybe they drive their life into a ditch, okay? That helps too. You know, their way just isn't doing it, all right? You know, I've, all these years, I've been in control of my life. Look where it's gotten me. Look at the mess I've made of it. Maybe you ought to rethink this Christianity thing. That guy in my office or that gal in my office, you know, I used to call them a nut job, but boy, they always come in with such peace. They're always a kind word in their, in their, in their mouth. I mean, maybe you ought to rethink this Christianity thing. And they come to you and say, look, Maybe I was a little hasty. Can you share with me again, what does it mean to be a Christian and so on? If that happens, you don't say, I can't cast my pearls before the swine. You say, praise the Lord. Take them off for coffee. And you witness to them, right? But if they're hard-hearted and they're mocking you, you don't keep badgering them with the truth. You know? You don't keep... Look, the truth of God, the gospel in particular, is a treasure Paul said God has put in these earth and what? Vessels. It's a treasure. And I'm not to give the treasure of God's truth to a person who takes it, mocks it, throws it on the ground, and stomps it into the dirt with their feet. It's too precious. If they don't want it, they don't have to get it. But I'm not going to just serve it up for them to bat around and ridicule and make fun out of. I was reading um, commentator J. Vernon McGee preparing the study. And he related a true story about a gentleman he knew uh, that was um, in the Tennessee legislature, all right? And this guy had been a kind of a wild guy, drinker, and so on, and partier, and then he gets saved. Well, all of his unsaved buddies now, you know, made fun out of him. In fact, one day when, when they were in session, one of the guys stood up mocking this fellow, you know, assemblyman, saying, uh, uh, let's all hear a sermon now from Deacon so-and-so, mocking this guy, right? And McGee said, this guy was up to the task. So he stood up and said, uh, Gentlemen, I have nothing to say. My Lord told me I was not to cast my pearls before the swine. He said, Everybody shut up and never ridiculed him again. You know, there are times when we just have to, to hold our ground and say, You know what? What I have is a treasure. If you want it, it's a free gift. 
If you don't, I'm not going to waste my time taking the treasure of God and let you throw it around and kick it around and ridicule it. So, folks, let me just say this to you. This is one of the hardest lessons we as Christians need to learn. And I can't tell you, I always walk the balance because it's hard to know, okay, Lord, when have I given them enough truth now and when should I just shut up and pray? Now that we're praying all the time, anyways, I, I can't tell you that. You have to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. But at least be open to the sensitivity of the Spirit to know this door is closed. I've given the truth to this person. They have rejected it flat out. And now I'm just going to pray. I'm going to let my light shine. And the lesson I think Jesus is teaching us here in verse 6 is learn to be discerning. That's the title of this message. Learning to be discerning. Because we have to rely on the Spirit to give us the sensitivity to know what to say, what not to say, and um, how to approach somebody. And usually, and maybe you've experienced this, I know that some of you have told me you've done this, as you're talking to somebody, you're praying, Lord, if you want me to witness this person, will you give me a little open door here? Just something. And all of a sudden, boom, there it is. You know? And the Holy Spirit is so obvious. And so that's where you start. And that's where you begin to target the gospel presentation. And it may not work to bring them to Christ immediately, but you'll plant seeds. Seeds that will be watered through prayer and hopefully bring them to Christ. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and grace. We thank you, Lord, that you laid it on people's hearts to witness to us when we were unbelievers. And Lord, maybe we made their lives miserable for a while. But Lord, thank you that you didn't give up on us. Thank you that, Lord, no doubt they were praying for us. And your spirit began to work, began to break down the walls, the hardness, the, the, the sin, until we finally understood our need for Jesus. Lord, we don't want to give up on anybody. Even if, Lord, they shut us down cold and begin to mock us and ridicule us, that's okay, but we give us grace to love them anyways and to pray for them. They are not our enemy. They have been taken captive by the enemy to do his will. And by your grace, we want to see them set free. Thank you, Lord, for this treasure. You have entrusted to clay pots, crack pots, many of us, but thank you, Lord. We thank you that you have allowed us the privilege of going into all the world and sharing with the world the greatest treasure and gift the world has ever seen or been offered. We thank you, Lord. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.